0: Cyber tension as CUDS Day approaches. Costa Rican electrical utilities suffer from Conti ransomware. Emotets operators seem to be exploring new possibilities. North Korean cyber operators target journalists who cover the DPRK. A guilty plea in a strange case of corporate connected cyber stalking. Ben Yellen ponders the potential Twitter takeover. Mr. Security Answer Person John Pescatore addresses questions about vendors. And cybercrime run like a business. From the Cyberwire studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your Cyberwire summary for Tuesday, April 26, 2022. Russia's hybrid war against Ukraine has seen, over the past day, more sabotage and long range strikes from both sides. As Ukrainian forces apparently extend their operations to targets inside Russia proper, and Russia conducts airstrikes against Ukrainian installations well outside the Donbas and the Azov coast. But there are no reports of further cyber attacks in the war, although all parties remain on alert to their likelihood. As Kuds Day approaches this Friday, a traditional time of heightened cyber tension between Iran and other nations, especially Israel, The AP reports that Iranian media say the country has detected and blocked hundreds of cyber attacks against public and private infrastructure. Haaretz reports that an Iranian hacktivist outfit styled Hackers of Savior has claimed a successful attack against the Bank of Israel. The group claims to have accessed customers' accounts, but both Israel's National Cyber Directorate and the Bank of Israel say they found no indication of any kind of hacking into any banking network. Conti's ransomware campaign against Costa Rica has expanded to affect the country's electrical power distribution system, the record reports. JSEC, the organization that delivers power to the city of Cartago, said that its administrative and business systems had been disabled by the ransomware. This doesn't, however, represent a direct attack on industrial control systems, Power generation and distribution continue normally, JSEC says. Proofpoint this morning reported that it's seeing unusual activity from Emotet malware-wielding gang TA-542. The criminal group, which has been in a slow period since going into partial hibernation early last year, appears to be conducting low-volume testing of new techniques. Specifically, they're using OneDrive URLs and XLL files to deliver their malicious payloads. The activity may also indicate a shift to more selective and limited-scale attacks in parallel to the typical mass-scale email campaigns. Researchers at Stairwell have released an extensive report on Goldbackdoor, malware deployed by APT37, the DPRK cyber threat group, also tracked as Ricochet-Kolima. The researchers say... Stairwell assesses with medium-high confidence that Goldback Door is the successor of, or used in parallel with, the malware Blue Light, attributed to APT 37, Ricochet-Kolima. This assessment is based on technical overlaps between the two malware families and the impersonation of NK News, a South Korean news site focused on the DPRK. Much of the activity in the current campaign is directed at data exfiltration, Bleeping Computer notes that Pyongyang regards new reporting as a fundamentally hostile activity which would account for the attention being paid to journalists. The U.S. Department of Justice has announced that one of those accused of cyber-stalking the couple who ran a mom-and-pop e-commerce newsletter has taken a guilty plea. James Bao, 47, of San Jose, California, eBay's former senior director of safety and security, pleaded guilty to one count of conspiracy to commit stalking through interstate travel and through facilities of interstate commerce, two counts of stalking through facilities of interstate commerce, two counts of witness tampering, and two counts of destruction, alteration, and falsification of records in a federal investigation. The stalking seems to have been unusually malign and focused. The U.S. Attorney's Office explained The campaign included sending anonymous and disturbing deliveries to the victim's home, sending private Twitter messages and public tweets criticizing the newsletter's content and threatening to visit the victims, traveling to their home to surveil the victims and installing a GPS tracking device on their car. Sentencing is expected in September. And finally, free trials can be used to attract customers in the criminal-to-criminal market just like they are in legitimate markets. IT Market discusses the case of the Ginzo Info Stealer, which, while in G Data's estimation isn't particularly novel, is wooing clients and building reputation in the C2C market. So the criminals, like many other businesses, aren't selling steak, they're selling sizzle. And step right up, they're offering their criminal customers free stuff as an incentive. And who doesn't like free stuff?
2: Hello and welcome back to Mr. Security Answer Person. I'm John Pescatori. Let's get into our question for this week. This week I'll attempt to answer two related but diametrically opposed questions at once. Security Person A asks, I worked in IT before transferring into the Security Operations Group. In IT, there seems to be relentless market consolidation of vendors as well as pressure from the CIO to reduce the number of suppliers used. In IT security, it seems there are literally thousands of vendors with new ones showing up each week and almost no pressure to consolidate. What's up with that? Security person B asks, what can we do to keep small, innovative security vendors alive? It seems like the big vendors spend most of their time trying to lock us into their product line and very rarely innovate or meet our individual needs. But when we find a small vendor with a cool and useful product, Within two years, almost invariably, they are acquired by a big security vendor, and the product line is either dumbed down or disappears. Will this ever change? Well, this reminds me of one of those optical illusions where half the people see the dress as blue and black, and the other half see it as gold and white. It is hard to get good data, but CompTIA said a few years ago that there were over 525,000 IT product and service companies in the U.S. alone. CyberDB says there are about 3,500 information security vendors in the U.S., This means security vendors are only 0.7% of the overall IT vendor count, which is actually quite low compared to the spending ratio between the two areas, where IT security spending is somewhere around 5% of overall IT spending. So by that metric, it does not really seem like there are too many security vendors. On the other hand, and there's always another hand, every time a new threat comes out, there does seem to be a wave of new security vendors getting funded to create solutions aimed at that threat. Which, of course, makes no sense. The Verizon Data Breach Investigation Report has used both the CIS critical security controls and the MITRE ATT&CK framework to show there is a small number of root causes that enable the vast majority of threats. It doesn't matter whether a threat comes from a botnet or is ransomware or a data breach. Good security solutions should work across broad classes of threats. Common Sense says you really don't need a different toothpaste or toothbrush for your molars or those pointy teeth up front. But rather than go on yet another rant about vendor marketing, let me try to answer the real question here. How many security vendors do I need? Like all such broad questions, any meaningful answer, we'll start with it depends on. But first, let's establish some edge limits. One security vendor will never be sufficient for all but the smallest of companies, small office, home office, and the like. Many security vendors have tried to be one-stop security shopping companies. I call them security department stores. And it has never gone well and never lasted long. Similarly, many big IT infrastructure players like Cisco, IBM, Intel, and Microsoft have bought up all kinds of security products and tried to say, we are the infrastructure and we can secure the infrastructure. This never works. There are a lot of reasons why this will always be true. First off, we know from experience with the IBMs, Microsoft, Oracles, and many other big vendors that any time a vendor gets too high a market share, their innovation goes down and their willingness or ability to meet customer needs drops dramatically. Pricing may stay low or even get lower, but value goes down. So it's kind of a good thing that in security, we still usually see two or three vendors with large but nearly equal market shares versus one with 80% market share. Second, Microsoft Windows has conclusively proven over the last 30 years that monocultures are bad for security. This is true in the food chain and it is proven true in the software world as well. But I think most importantly, it's nearly impossible for one security company to be good, let alone great, across the many different technology areas that need protection. One simple division, network security versus host-based security were nearly completely different technical skills and understandings of differences in managing each technology are needed. When I was with Gartner, I had a $100 bet with a Fortune 100 CEO that no vendor would be a leader in both a network security and a security software magic quadrant. And 15 years later, I'm still winning that bet. So what am I saying? Two security vendors is probably okay? Well, not so fast. I've always broken the security markets into three broad segments. Keep the bad guys out. Pretty much everything threat or vulnerability facing. Firewalls, intrusion detection and prevention, vulnerability management, host-based security, etc. Changes are driven by new forms of attack or discovery of new types of vulnerabilities. Let the good guys in. This is mostly authentication and access control. Changes in this area are driven by business changes, not threats. Keep the wheels on. Governance risk compliance, security management tools, forensics, incident response, backup recovery, etc. Efficiency is job one here. These are well-known tasks. We need to do them more efficiently and with lesser skilled folks. Realistically, Fortune 1000-sized companies will need at least a few security vendors in each of these three areas. That probably means somewhere between 10 and 12 security vendors in use will prove to be the average or maybe even the low end of average. By the way, that doesn't even include the number of open-source security tools in use, a topic for another Mr. Security Answer Person episode. Will this ever change? The movements of business applications to cloud services and on-premise virtualized data centers has the potential to change this because the blurring of network and host in a virtualized environment. But this does require a much more converged virtual admin, security admin, IT admin form of governance that enterprises have been very slow to move to. So the bottom line, if you're using 50 different security vendors, you probably have a problem. If you're using just one or two security vendors, you're likely more focused on compliance than actual security. Moving that security vendor Goldilocks just right zone down from a dozen security vendors to a handful requires both high maturity security processes and governance integration across cloud, virtual data center, and IT admin. Easy to say, hard to do. Security answer person. Thanks for listening. I'm John Pescatori, Mr. Security Answer Person. Mr. Security answer person.
0: Mr. Security Answer Person with John Pescatori airs the last Tuesday of each month right here on the CyberWire. Send in your questions for Mr. Security Answer Person to questions at thecyberwire.com. And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He's from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security and also my co-host over on the Caveat podcast. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. So I don't know if you noticed, Ben. I know you're
1: active on Twitter. Uh, Twitter may have a new owner soon. It sure does. Uh, Mr. Elon (laughs) Musk, eccentric billionaire extraordinaire, has purchased Twitter for the low price of $44 billion. Mm -hmm. Uh, The money he found in his
0: couch cushions, no doubt. Uh, what do you make of this? What I, just, I mean, from
1: a serious point of view, what are the policy implications we could see of Twitter changing hands here? So it's unclear at this point. He's spoken broadly in the past about being an absolutist in terms of free speech, which mm-hmm. would seem to indicate that he would be for looser content moderation practices. Twitter does do things like shadow bans or uh, diminishing the content of users that post objectionable material. It's also done very high-profile things like permanently banning the account of former President Donald Trump. Right, and if Elon Musk is buying this for an ideological purpose, and that he wants to have a platform that is absolutist in its in its posture on free speech. I think that could have pretty wide-reaching implications for Twitter. Uh, President Trump could be back on it. There could be more leeway for people to post content that might have otherwise been banned because it's offensive, because it's considered abusive. And that might affect the business prospects of of Twitter. Um, We talked about on the Caveat podcast, it's always a fine line because if you loosen content moderation too much, you're going to end up with a platform full of bots, trolls, Neo Nazis, right? Well, and look at some of these other platforms that have spun up that where this has
0: been the thing that they've led with. That you know you'll be able to say whatever they they just don't seem to gain
1: popularity because there's no fun, right? Nobody wants to be on a platform that's been overrun by <laughs> these bots, spam, etc. That we right. just don't want to deal with. Yeah. uh So I think he's going to have to uh, straddle the line on that. I guess I'm confused as to why he's making this purchase. Hmm. If he's doing it because he thinks he can actually gain some value out of Twitter, make it a more profitable platform, then I think that has interesting potential. I mean there are certainly things he could do to improve the user experience of Twitter and maybe <laughs> because he's introduced innovations in uh, – The rest of his entrepreneurial work with Tesla, with SpaceX, Mm -hmm. maybe that's something that he can bring to the platform. Mm -hmm. What I worry about is he's doing this uh, as sort of a vanity project, that he was upset by particular Twitter policies that related to content moderation Mm -hmm. Uh, and that he thought, well, I have a lot of money. If I'm unhappy with these policies, why don't I just buy Twitter? Right. Buy it and fix it. Yeah. Uh, In that case, I mean, I think we would have to worry about... Twitter as we know it devolving into something unrecognizable Yeah, uh, where I guess putting it this way, we might miss the content moderation that we had mm-hmm. um, because there is a reason that many users, even if they say that they are free speech absolutists, don't want to be on a platform with a lot of smut. Yeah, uh, And so I think that's the line that he's certainly going to have to straddle.
0: Now, there's some policy stuff coming out of the EU
1: right now that could intersect with this. What, what's going on there? So just as a coincidence the EU and its member states this weekend agreed on a new digital regulation policy that's going to force uh, tech giants including Twitter to better police illegal content on their platforms otherwise they'd be risking multi-billion dollar fines and the structures the structure of the fines is going to be very similar to GDPR it would be a, a percentage of their annual earnings hmm. and it's no trump change i mean we're talking about potentially billions of dollars at stake hmm. What this legislation tries to do is uh, a couple of things. One, it would limit how these digital giants target users with online advertisements. Mm. So it would stop platforms from targeting users with algorithms based on immutable characteristics like race, gender, religion, et cetera. It would ban targeted advertisements aimed at children. The companies are now going to have to implement new procedures to take down illegal material, so things like hate speech, incitement to terrorism, child sexual abuse, uh, and then e-commerce sites, things like Amazon, have to uh, prevent the sale of illegal or illicit uh, – illegal goods or illicit material. Some of those things I think could fly in the United States. Certainly we have an infrastructure where we crack down on things like child sex abuse. Right. But when we're talking about incitement to terrorism and hate speech, if you take Elon Musk literally and he wants to put his free – speech absolutist ideology into his governance of Twitter, then we might run into some problems uh, as it relates to this new uh, European regulation. We have values in the United States that we are more, I guess, gung-ho about our our belief in in free speech than some of our European counterparts. Right. So we are more willing to accept things like hate speech and incitement to violence in service of the idea that we should have a robust marketplace of ideas. Uh, so there that might end up being a conflict, uh, and we already see echoes of this. There was a story in the Financial Times that seems to indicate European authorities saying, look, Elon Musk, if you are going to loosen content moderation practices on Twitter to the point that we start seeing a lot of hate speech, we start seeing a lot of incitements to domestic terrorism, then we won't be afraid to fine you and we won't be afraid to potentially ban Twitter in the European Union. Yeah. Uh, so we see this clash of ideologies that I think is playing out in a very high profile way.
0: You know, it, it reminds me of something I, I heard years ago, and and uh, this is anecdotal, and so take it for what it's worth. But I remember seeing someone say, "If you want to get the Nazis out of your Twitter feed, tell Twitter you're in Germany, tag your location as being in Germany, because evidently Twitter, as required, does a really effective job of filtering out that content for German citizens." Right. Because they're because they, they have to. Right. So it's possible. Perhaps there's a technological solution to this, but it certainly is an, an interesting intersection, timing-wise. You know, at this moment that uh, Elon Musk is is uh, trying to buy Twitter, the EU is sort of tightening down their own content moderation guidelines.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we might be on a collision course. And if we know one thing about Elon Musk, is he likes to push the envelope? He likes to be provocative. Right. So we could see him potentially. Loosening content moderation policies to set up an ideological clash with authorities in the European Union. Mm-hmm. And he'd bring a lot of power with him. It's not just that he's purchasing a multi-billion-dollar company, but we have a political culture in the United States that really does value free speech. So I think it would be a major ideological conflict. I don't think we're going to get to the point where Twitter is banned in Europe because Elon Musk won't institute content moderation policies. Right. But I do think we're potentially on a collision course where there's going to be some back and forth ideological battle that might involve billion dollars worth of fines that maybe Elon Musk is OK paying, right? If he's willing to <laughs> Again, purchase right Twitter for forty four billion dollars. What's another
0: billion here? It's just another another trip to the couch and, and rifling through the cushions for some spare change. Exactly. Right. <laughs> All right. Ben Yellen. Thanks for joining us. Our amazing CyberWire team is Liz Urban, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabe, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpe, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.